You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today is Christian Olson of Alpha Armenia, Survival Unit, uh, Stig Elsa, Grimyud, uh, countless other things, projects. And uh, hi, Christian. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me as a guest here today. Thanks for speaking with us. We've, we've been in contact for a, a long time. So it's nice yes. to, to actually get to sit down and chat. I mean, we, we did some years ago uh, in Stockholm or Solna, I believe, properly. Oh, oh yes. The Muscle <laughs> Tour. It's excellent venue. Yeah. In, inside of a, a train station. Yeah. A bomb shelter, I, I think. They have these underneath all the train stations, Stockholm almost. Seems like a fitting time to talk now for the podcast as just released was the Survival Unit and Grey Wolves collaboration on Hospital Productions. Yes, uh, it certainly is. I must say uh, it's about time this recording is properly released since it has been collecting dust in my attic for 20 years or something like that till I found, found it by accident. One day I was convinced that this recording had gone missing somehow in the chaotic times that uh, actually were back then for me. So it's a really important uh, recording for me personally, since uh, I can't enough begin to express how much Grey Wolves has meant for me as as an artist and uh, on many other more profound levels as well. It's... It's a really exceptional project, and I'm uh, very honored to be able to to collaborate with them. Even if it's a long, long time ago, it's it feels quite uh, up to date, I would say. And how did the collaboration come together, and how did it work when you did it 20 years ago? Was it through the mail? Was it in person? Is it so long ago that you don't recall? Yeah. How did it? How did it come together? Well, I, I have surprisingly clear memories from that, at least. And uh, well, I, I was corresponding via letters with the Trev Ward of Grey Wolves, and we we discussed the idea of doing some uh, collaboration work for for. Uh, compilation CD he was putting out. It was a series, uh, Transmissions of Power was the first one, uh, followed by Transmissions of Hatred. And for this, uh, we did send tapes back and forth to each other and exchanged sounds. And I edited together, added some vocals and so on, and two uh, segments of, of this material were put on the transmissions of hatred cd by some reason i don't know uh, it, like he he probably liked both uh, but the idea was just to use one but uh, there was a lot of material that wasn't really being used so on finding this four track cassette i talked to uh, to Dominic about it, he suggested that I should do a track for for the Afterlives cassette compilation that he put out on Hospital Productions, and so I did. And uh, 
I began to edit it roughly out of this material. Like the entire work is about an hour. So I provided that to him in its entirety. Uh, that is what is coming out now. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. So the the track on the on the remorseless greed comp is a, is a bit of a preview for what we're going to get with the full cassette. Yes, I, I would say so. It's uh, it's the only uh, stuff that has vocals. Is the material that is on the on the uh, afterlife oh, okay. compilation, and the rest is is instrumental stuff and. Uh, I think uh, it has so many interesting textures and uh, levels. There is a lot going on in the whole sound. So I, I always thought that the Grey Wolves were a very interesting band, also in a sonic perspective. Or the the sounds they do are unlike anything else. Oh, there's no no say. question. Obviously, Hugh, we three of us are massive Grey Wolves fans, and and one of the things that's so incredible about them is the how many places they can go. Whether or not it's with sound, whether or not it's with samples, whether or not there's vocals, there's such a wide breadth of what they can do, Certainly. and it's just never never stops being inspiring, and never stops just filling you with everything you want when you hear gray wolves but also with gray wolves not only sonically but visually and this survival unit gray wolves tape just looks like something out of the old days how did that cover come together and how did you guys work on that thank you uh well it was uh, done by me and dominic at the hospital uh, productions office in front of his uh, xerox machine perfect with uh yeah, the scissors and glue stick, uh, old school techniques, and I brought with me some some old archive material, both from me and from uh, from the Grey Wolves. So it was a it was a good uh, combination of uh, of art from uh, from both sources, I would say. So even if uh, none of our projects are active anymore it's still uh, it's a sort of uh, haunting from beyond the grave so to speak that's incredible and while you say not really active anymore survival unit has played shows here and there since the last release correct what was the last show was it the 2019 show in chicago or was there other survival unit yeah i i think it was the that was the final yeah. show or it was at the tower transmissions in uh, in the rest right right uh the, the same year but it it was really chicago was really something spectacular i would say it was an amazing atmosphere in the in the audience and uh, we had to have uh, agonal lust boys uh, do some kind of uh, spontaneous uh, uh, security just to keep uh, keep the table from getting tipping over hey two, two, <laughs> so two, two good security yeah. guards there i would have them be security yeah, that's, that's a, a good that was definitely a good call yeah yeah yeah, yeah they, they are uh, yeah, solid guys in all regards i think so, but that, that was great, and it was uh, 
interesting to to see uh, the Club Rectum venue. I, I believe this was the final event. Yes. So it, it was a fitting way to to end it all. And we had uh, uh, we also had uh, the the people from uh, Young Hustlers joining from Sweden. This was one of the last uh, times I met uh, one of the members before he died. So he, he passed away shortly after. It's a very sad thing, but it feels very good to have shared this this stage together with him. Yeah, that show is legendary. Uh, it, it was a very good evening, I would say, in, in general. And uh, all acts really pushed the boundaries for what they did. and. Uh, performed excellent sets. It was really something. I must say the same goes for now a few weeks ago in New York as well. So in general, I, I think there is a very good live music scene in, in the United States scene. At least when I've been there, it's been very solid evenings. Do you, do you feel that same way about Sweden or no? The thing with Sweden is that the best shows are usually uh, spontaneous events that are being put together in in some remote location where the connections with the society, we can leave all that behind and just focus entirely on what we do. I had a nice experience now in uh, in February. Uh, where I live in the north of Sweden, there was a concert in in an old uh, union, uh, a building for the for the workers' union, old one in uh, I, I think it's uh, like early 20th century, with uh, um, out in the middle of nowhere on an island. So there was uh, performance from Project Hot. Fredriksröset and uh, Alformania and Galme. Uh, all of this was for an audience of maybe 10 people. <laughs> uh, and it, it was uh, quite spectacular, I must say. So beautiful uh, surroundings with uh, all the snow and coldness of, of this rural setting and uh, very uh, loud noises. It was uh, the first show from Project Hot in Sweden since 2006. Wow. So it was really something. And Project Hot, someone who you have collaborated with repeatedly and, and also been in contact with for a long time, right? Oh, yes. Uh, I owe a great deal to, to him. And I would say he is like uh, my big brother in a sense. And, uh, well, he began mentoring me at a very early age, like when I, I was, uh, 13 years, something like oh, that. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And he, we come from the same town and he was kind of the most, uh, the most fanatic, uh, black metal person you could, could, uh, find, but there was also something else to it. And it was this, bizarre taste for industrial music and it was a whole 
almost uh, uh, it was entirely an esoteric universe he was opening up to me teaching me about about all these uh, things and the more we got to know each other as time went on he, he began to to hand me tapes with uh, like a hunting lodge and uh, early necrophile record stuff Maritzbo tapes like the Lampinak, Sadomasochismo, and like schooling me from from an early stage in the in the ways to do things. So uh, I still today I have a lot of useful advice and a good friend in him. So I'm glad that we are still working together also with with uh, or collaborative recordings. There is a new album coming out on Ferlaut Barung called Sinnes Villor and Själsplittring och Sinnes Villor is the correct title. It means uh, the shattering of the soul and uh, uh, Sinnes Villor is translating maybe to uh, almost like hallucinations or the mind playing tricks on you. So. Uh, but anyway, we worked on that one and also have a couple of other things coming out. We are usually extremely, extremely uh, coordinated when we perform together. It's, uh, it's nothing I've experienced with anyone else, really, because it's uh, almost like we have a, a hive mind, <laughs> so to speak. When we begin to, uh, when, when we tap into this uh, this uh, collective unconscious or something, it's uh, automatically flowing out of the speakers, and it's very rewarding to work with him. I must say, you started collaborating together in around two thousand six in terms of putting out releases. Yeah, 2005, I think we did the first proper uh, works together for the Sundsvalls Elite that he put out on his cassette label Hot Band. But I'm, I'm uh, really considering like the first uh, proper work we did together was the LP that uh, Horsehead Rituals put out, Purification or Furification. It's, it's uh, dealing with... Uh, I was really into the Paul Nashi movies at the time. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the the Spanish werewolf. So it, it was partly based on that, and uh, like uh, uh, some some kind of uh, acid uh, drenched uh, lycanthropy. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Movies have always been a big source of inspiration for you too, right? cinema oh yes certainly certainly i've been periods i've been collecting a lot of a lot of films ex-rentals and uh, even though i kind of stopped doing all that i still appreciate a lot of cinema and uh, for some time i worked in a a local video store called videodrome that carried a lot of this uh, european uh, weird stuff horror movies and so on so it came natural 
for some time I watched maybe two movies a day or something like that. Just bringing back stuff from the store to, to consume. It's the same with music or books, whatever. It's just a certain mindset that, that I find rewarding in many, many regards. In the late 90s, you started releasing material as Survival Unit. Oh, yes. How long was the pipeline from sort of starting to starting the project to releasing something? Was it a quick thing? Well, was it- no, no, no. Uh, it's well, it's it started out with me, the typical story, doing the experiments at home with uh, the tape recorders and uh, uh, you, you know the drill. Uh, and then I hooked up like I, I was a kid. I was into the black metal seen black metal underground and uh, through this i came in contact with a guy uh, magnus forsberg was his name and he was the guy with whom i founded what was to become survival unit uh, magnus he unfortunately passed away in 2009 uh, and uh, it's a sad story but uh, he, he was uh, true to the very end, although he, he and I, we kind of parted ways. He became uh, involved in the, the outlaw lifestyle, debt collecting and all this stuff. Did some time in jail. Before he passed away, we met, I think it was in 2007, he showed up for an Alfermania live show we held in an illegal storage facility by the railroad and we had a new year's party there it looked like we had a stroboscope with the with the lights just uh, flashing from pulsations of the music it, it was very small space and we we had a show there minus he comes in uh, in this uh, armoni costume together with uh, with some shady underworld people and he uh, is uh, really uh, spaced out so to speak but he becomes very overwhelmed by this this uh, performance that he is witnessing and uh, he uh, makes a spontaneous guest appearance with us and he he takes uh, a roll of duct tape and begins to uh, to tape it around his head and uh, like over his eyes and nose and mouth. And uh, then he grabs some of the scrap metal and the chains I have and just smashes his head with this. And I have the contact mics on it as well. So there is a little sound coming from it, but the there's coming seconds he uh, uh, passes out from um, loss of air because he has uh, sealed all his breathing with the duct tape without really noticing it so uh, that's a very good appearance but we started out in uh, uh, like i think we did first show in 97 or something with fdh was the name or this was pre-survival unit and then it just became into survival unit and around 99 i did all the stuff myself and instead 
recruited temporary temporary um, members for live shows and of course did a lot of collaborative work as well uh, in this early period actually uh, we have people like uh, Thomas Ekelund Treponeringsritualen he appeared on some some shows uh, and recordings and also a guy from a band Factory Forming that uh, is doing nowadays the Khmer Noir is this angry anarchist very violent person typical uh, working class brute in in lots of other ways to describe him yeah but uh, it's a, a quite uh, shady shady bunch of people um i'm uh, i i was also joined often by a guy uh, david barilund david blade barilund and i'm really glad to say that he is uh, still alive and kicking uh, a lot of the people with whom i worked are unfortunately not so that's uh, the consequences of of living life to the fullest or seeking death in everything well you talk about shady characters and chaotic life and chaos from back then even up to the last survival unit show what does chaos what what role does chaos play in your life and work and especially back then what was that chaos and how did it play into your output back then it was uh, my music and art was the anchor kind of the fixed point in life when all that uh, surrounded me was the opposite and it was what uh, what kept me going and uh, kind of kept me out of uh, doing time or something like this it's uh, or worse consequences so I had a, a quite uh, drastic point when my son was born. I tried to uh, change the the course of my life, and that's uh, 16 years ago now. The role of chaos in the work of, for example, Survival Unit has been very essential to, to the project, but it has always been also kind of riding the energies of chaos, not uh not exactly just uh, allowing oneself to dissolve in in it but uh, trying to stir it into or, or to to direct it in a certain way or to achieve the results i uh, envisioned it never becomes exactly the way you plan of course but uh, sometimes i'm i'm quite satisfied with the results from starting performing live in the late 90s and experimenting to releasing the first survival unit, which was 99? Yeah. Uh, well, of course, I did some cassettes. I think I did a tape. Uh, first real official tape was on Radio Signal that later became Neuropa label, uh, some neo-folk label, I believe. Not really uh, keep up with that. But... Uh, 
that uh, cassette came out in 99, I think. But uh, the first uh, real release was the No Surrender One Man's War 7-inch on State Art that Marco Koch put out. And uh, this was, yeah, this was uh, quite a spectacular thing that he, he pressed it in. Uh, I think the back says like 500 copies or something, but I believe he did actually 600 or something because the price was the same. I think it still uh, holds the tests of time, even though I would have shortened it to make it like... Uh, Three minute tracks or something would have been ideal, but I, I could have a lot of more embarrassing things to do back then. <laughs> so I'm I'm proud of that one. It's uh, a pity that it uh, it was uh, intended to be followed by a uh, by an LP shortly after, but uh, things did not work out that way. So. It was intended to be called Werewolf Training. The material instead turned up on various compilations and scattered throughout the world. And uh, the title was even kind of borrowed by a black metal band I was involved with. I actually founded it around the same time as Survival Unit. It was called uh, Bloodline. Uh, so th there is a, uh, an album the debut album of Bloodline is called Werewolf Training, and it contains segments from the Survival Unit album. Well, so I wanted to ask you about the connection of black metal and industrial for you, because you were in the black metal world before you discovered industrial. Am I correct in that, or was it about the same time? It's about the same time, uh, really. I, I, I kind of came into that whole like the underground thing with the tape trading and uh, sending letters and scenes and, and so further. And uh, pretty soon became disillusioned with the whole uh, shallowness of black metal. It was not what I had envisioned and it lacked a lot of what I personally required. And I instead found that in, in industrial music and noise and that was uh, also through the underground, the black metal underground that I came in touch with, with much of uh, the people that I, I came to uh, have as mentors sort of in, in this. I, uh, I should mention the guy from Blood, uh, Jesper Forselius, one of the greatest Swedish noise artists of all time, I would say. And uh, also, I had a lot of contact at an early stage with uh, the guy from uh, Puissance and Arditi, Henry Muller. And he was, uh, he was uh, kind of tutoring me over, we had uh, long telephone calls and uh, he, he uh, got me into stuff like uh, uh, Grey Wolves and Macronympha, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and all this stuff, like really opening up the, my perspectives for how to do things. And uh, at the time, Henry, he was working at the Cold Meat Industry record store. 
so he could get me stuff easily and kept me up to date. And it was later also that I came to um, came to know Roger Carmonic, of course, and. Well, he, he turned out to be a very supportive person, way beyond my wildest expectations. I owe a great deal to him as well. And uh, of course, Tommy Carlson, Tredigstraset, uh, is also one of the early mentors that I can't uh, give enough credit to what he has, has done to help and support and guide me. What were you looking for? that industrial and noise gave to you that black metal was not giving to you at that time? From a very sort of uh, infantile point of view, it, it was the, the way that it, it felt uh, already too commercially oriented. And I thought it was becoming too overproduced and... Um, Sort of, I, I I was seeking the most obscure and uh, depraved forms of uh, art, regardless of of how it sounded. I I was also into into the D beat, hardcore punk stuff, and some uh, similar kinds of music, and uh, through through other. Uh, Contacts. I got to learn about the Swedish electroacoustic uh, music tradition and uh, the, all this music concrete and sound art. And it turned out that uh, they had like a similar approach to making uh, sound. And uh, at at this point, like I I did not know much about the outside world that it existed a big uh, underground scene for these kinds of music so me and my my friends we kind of made uh, what we could out of it and uh, therefore i would say it's uh, as big source of inspiration with uh, let's take uh, rune lindblad or Terry Riley, some, someone like this, uh, as uh, as well as Grey Wolves or uh, early Mertzbo stuff or whatever. It's uh, it's all really just different uh, uh, different uh, branches of the same tree, I would say. So it, it was never genre defined. The whole black metal thing, it felt so shallow, and it was also some something that began to attract so much uh, people just seeking to to further inflate their egos and they, they had some rock star ambitions and were lousy musicians so they probably thought that this is the the way to do it but uh, there, there was a quite clear point i would say in the the stuff made from the mid 90s and onwards in sweden at least it was lacking what i was searching for but there was of course some good people and that's how i came in contact with the guy from blood jesper and he was uh, live he's still living in the same house this um, 
it looks like uh, the Ed Gein house, <laughs> something in a village outside of uh, Sundsvall, the town where I live. And he he has, um, back then he was doing art. I had requested him to help me do record cover for my dark ambient project, Hade, which I, I put out uh, two albums with me and some other people and so he did and uh, Jesper he turned out to be a very friendly um, he's a lovely person very strange but one of the best and uh, he was uh, so excited to see a young person being into more extreme forms of industrial music so he began to give me all these uh, really essential records like Grey Wolf stuff, uh, Condom, uh, White Hand, uh, This Is Fun cassette, for example, really one of my absolute favorite tapes to this day. And uh, Smell and Cream, all this, uh, all this stuff, and it, uh, it really shaped the way I saw things and I realized there was a whole uh, uh, parallel universe that had exactly what I had been seeking my entire life. So that has uh, still today. I'm I'm so glad to see that it never ends. There, there is always some new expressions that uh, continue to catch my interest and uh, blow my mind, so to speak. It's uh, it's something I had. Uh, I, I talked with uh, Dominic Hospital about this since uh, since we were talking about the gray wolves and how they always tend to like. You think that you have managed to see all their <laughs> all their work, and uh, there is always new artwork and. Uh, uh, new recordings surfacing here and there, and I'm so amazed by the level of productivity from these people. It's um, it, the, the same goes for many others, of course. It's uh, it's um, inspiring to see so many fanatics uh, doing worthy stuff out there. Oh yeah, forever inspiring, and especially with Grey Wolves, like you're saying, it's there's always something new. Whether or not it's a, it's a flyer that mm-hmm. that you've never seen, a version of a tape, a different cover, a different color for the cover is always something new to be discovered. And of course, every everyone you've mentioned, we can go back on Smell and Quim all the time and just hear something new on an old release or just catch something we didn't catch before. And it just, it never ends. It truly never ends. And then taking those inspirations with creating new stuff, it's, it, it just is something that continues to feed itself. And you are someone who has made contact with a lot of the old guard of Swedish underground and industrial, especially back years ago. And one of those projects is blood of the Christ. How did you end up getting in contact with blood of the Christ working with blood of the Christ? Can you tell us about that? Oh, yes, I can do. Um, 
Well, uh, the the beginning was really when I was a small kid and attending uh, one of these uh, all ages shows called Stål och Industri Festival. Um, this was a festival in my hometown at a local rock club that had. Uh, it, it turned out that it was. Uh, being curated by Harry Honkanemi. And uh, this had uh, had a quite spectacular, I think it's a 15 member live act that's uh, called Jesus Christ Bulldozer. So this was a mid 90s incarnation of Blood of the Christ. I recall it being described as uh, Total drug music uh, inspired by uh, the fat uh, and uh, uh, decadent Elvis as a doped, and uh, th- this was a truly r- remarkable occasion. The Swedish National Radio was there to record it, since the whole uh, the whole event was going to be broadcast on on P3, uh, one of the radio channels. And uh, this was uh, a lineup that included Project Hot and the guy from Winter, another uh, local industrial project from the time, and uh, assorted low lives from the local scene i think uh, I, i'm not i think tommy carlson was also part of this of course i did not know any of these people back then um but it, it was extremely shitty in terms of music since it was totally un- uncoordinated they bragged about never rehearsing and um, they, they had smuggled in a guy called the shitman he was uh, smuggled into a cardboard box on stage and uh, he had he, he was banned from the venue since he was widely famous for doing uh, on, on the local festivals together with another guy also called Beismannen. So there were two of these scatological tricksters and they had a habit of uh, like hiding in the in the uh, festival toilets when people were shitting and poking them in the ass and also tipping them over with the doors (laughs) down so people were swimming in shit and it was extremely uh these these people are like uh, urban legends almost in sweden but they are real you mean and uh, actually this guy the shit man he he uh, um, i got to know him years later when he had sort of cleaned up his act and uh, he uh, yeah, we had some good evenings together out drinking he was uh, connected with good moonshine so he always brought that. And we we went out in the nights here, and 
he told me that he had uh, been uh, attending the slave state concert at the club moral back in the 80s together with uh, Harry and we began talking about various other things and uh, uh, I recall one of the nights he and I, uh, we realized that we were sitting at a party that was in the same building as a local uh, Euro techno celebrity lib called Melody MC. He had some hit songs back in, <laughs> in the early 90s, but uh, uh, the shit man, he went and he pissed into his uh, mailbox, <laughs> into his apartment. <laughs> so that's the level of this guy. But he, he is really something. But he, he was on the, in a box, jumping out on stage, like uh, Jack in the box. And uh, he began uh, uh, pissing into some uh, some uh, bowl and he, he drank his own piss and began to vomit and did all of these things. And meanwhile, uh, Project Hot was slicing himself up with some razor carving hate to life into his uh, chest. And it was uh, total chaos. And uh, this event was uh, important later on. It, it became a big scandal the weeks to follow. But then some years later, towards end of 90s, I was uh, talking to Tommy Carlson, who was then like a much older uh, mentor. He was oracle for noise and industrial culture uh, that I deeply <laughs> uh, revered. So uh, he, he was very, uh, he knew everything that was to know, it felt like. And I, I still must say he's a huge uh, source of of wisdom. But uh, he told me that uh, you're in Sonsvall, then you should hear Master Control. Oh, I, I have never heard of this, I told him, and he he made me a cassette dub of uh, of this recording that totally fucking blew my mind. I was uh, into all this com organization stuff, uh, Broken Flag, and uh, the European Power Electronics, but uh, I had never imagined that in my hometown it could have been done in a way that almost uh, wiped the floor with all of the contemporary acts. At least in Sweden, it was only Roger Karmanik who could compete with the level of insanity that was on this recording. So I began to seek Mr. Honkanemi. He was a person with extremely bad reputation in town since he, he uh, lived a very rough life with a lot of crime and bad habits. And at the time uh, before he had split down, he was very involved in the, in the rave culture, doing a lot of acid. I think he, he dropped like uh, 
32 Hoffman jubileum uh, trips at once and uh, did all of these uh, things. So he was not in the same universe as other people for a while. And he had left town and uh, was uh, living in a small uh, community called Kramfors, maybe two hours from Sundsvall. It's a godless uh, shit hole of a town, and uh, I think no one would live there uh, out of their own will. But uh, Harry, he he had uh, retreated there, and uh, I I think the reason for getting in touch with him was uh, that I was uh, at some point going to put out uh, a cassette with Slave State. Uh, performing live in uh, in the Club Moral basement. Uh, this was something we had uh, planned to do, me and uh, a guy in Belgium, around uh, 99 maybe. Uh, so I contacted Harry since I heard that he had attended this show. Um, and he... he uh, actually had a lot of photographs, the rumor said. So it turned out this was true and he wrote a quite uh, angry letter, like, leave me alone. <laughs> and uh, uh, well, then uh, we uh, got to get in, uh, in, in contact when he moved back to Sundsvall and uh, we started to hang out. And uh, it turned out that we had a lot in common. Like he had been going down the same the same um, pathway in life as I had only in the in the eighties. So he was almost uh, twenty years older and had a lot of wisdom and experience. And back in the mid eighties, when he had moved here to Sundsvall from Stockholm, from the suburbs of Stockholm, he was um, running this mail order operation called Blood of the Christ tapes, and he distributed all the craziest cassettes, everything from uh, Broken Flag, Epar, Necrophile Records, Servile Ghost, um, to Strangest. Yeah, a lot of the American stuff, and so he he became a, a great mentor for me, and he he and I got along good, and we started to talk about the opportunities for Segerhuva to release Master Control Recordings CD. So he he was quite easy to convince, and. From that point on, it was uh, like the demons uh, had regained their grip over him. He told me once that he was, after a Pete Tosh concert at the age of 10, he had, <laughs> he had been uh, smoking some uh, mold Nepal and uh, that he bought from some mods guy with uh, this afghan 
fur jacket and uh, after doing that he had been uh, hearing a demonic voice and he felt the worst pain ever in his life like something drilling out of his skull and uh, from that point on everything went straight to hell for Harry in life he said um, he's a uh, very uh, he's uh, good at telling stories so it's not always entirely true but uh, there is a sense of truth at least to it but he um, he and I uh, started to rehearse a bit for for the release party of Master Control, and from that point we kind of uh, got together. And I arranged, uh, I, I rented an old uh, uh, sailor's church in, uh, in in my hometown, and we launched a release party for for the CD there. So we had the uh, sewer election, Trierix Roset collaboration, Project Hot, um, Alpha Mania doing one of the first live shows, and uh, uh, this act called Karman Jakan Intuna Rumori, that later was called Bestializer. Uh, so this was a really weird evening and uh, Vice magazine had a reporter center to report and uh, down in the basement before the Blood of the Christ show we uh, found a life-size coffin and this uh, this casket it uh, was empty so uh, Project Hot and uh, Tommy Carlson and myself we concluded that yeah there is only one person that should go into this and that is you Harry and we uh, force him down into the coffin and uh, it's a good thing to have a, a big man like Tommy <laughs> when doing something right. like this uh, because it, it was it was quite tricky it was like a beehive <laughs> or something like that it, it was very angry and we pu pushed on the lid and we kicked on the casket and uh, just uh, channeled the the proper energies to have uh, to have the live performance and we dragged this uh, uh, coffin with harry inside up uh, for the stairs to the stage and uh, while doing this i accidentally managed to like uh, uh, open the door in a very br brutal way so I uh, hit out a tooth on the vice oh. uh, reporter yeah, that's that's so totally I, fine it's all right yeah that, that, that was great and uh, I tip out the coffin with Harry inside on stage and he is so disoriented he is already very very intoxicated with by alcohol so the first uh, minutes we just begin fighting him and me. So it's a very chaotic introduction of the resurrected blood of the Christ. But it, from there on, it turned out uh, great. It's so many both dark and entertaining stories being uh, around this person. He he takes out uh, the worst, uh, but also makes me very. Uh, focused and like uh, 
uh, authoritarian since I need to keep him in in uh, <laughs> in order <laughs> keep him in line um, yeah but but he is a is a really uh, he, he is a true pioneer and I'm glad that he has straightened up his life a lot since uh, since maybe 10 years ago I was uh, worried that we were not going to do any anything more if he would survive it, it turned out he he got uh, sober and he actually became a father again so his uh, third child was born uh, 5 years ago but uh, we we have done some uh, some unreleased recordings i don't know if that will be released or not but we we will see but uh, most uh, Important, I think, regarding Harry is uh, is the stuff that he did in the 80s. He was also a very important, uh, uh, like a hub for a, a cultural influencer, sinister influencer. He brought Club Moral to do their only live show in, in Sweden ever. It was here in Sundsvall, and uh, he published great a uh, double cassette compilation called Sounds Beyond the Grave in in 1986 the same time as he did the master control recordings uh, this was done at uh, a rehab center outside of town where he had the 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 staff and the psychiatrists they concluded that industrial music was the uh, the root of all evil and the source of his um, moral, uh, well, his lack of morals, his moral decline. And they locked away all his cassettes. And uh, Harry was raged, uh, enraged about this. And instead, he he did uh, payback. So he hijacked a sort of um, uh, a disco sound system when they had some. Uh, entertainment night uh, and he took some uh, Tandberg reel-to-reel recorders and locked himself into a room for a weekend and recorded Master Control, his payback upon on the, the orderly society. So it's a very, it's a very brutal recording, I would say. It's, uh, hard to to outmatch uh, it's one of the reasons why i have not done so much more is there is no point to to do anything further beyond what was done really he did that and also uh, i think as early as 83 or 84 he did uh, a cassette sachsenhausen industriale this was uh, I, I discovered this at uh, at the house of uh, roger karmonik when he was still running cold meat industry, like in a, in a bag of cassettes. And I was, well, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I see that it has Harry written over it. So this was later released on Hot Band. So it it was reissued. It's called uh, Sick Tape. It's really exceptional. It sounds like uh, Mauthausen Orchestra or, or something like that. It's uh, 90 minutes of uh, pure post-mortem Power electronic stuff. Great, really. 
Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. That's what an incredible story and of how you guys met and how you guys work together. And that concludes part one of our conversation with Christian Olson. Stay tuned next week for part two. You have been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 20 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.